6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, part 2. Okay, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of your Word. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we would ask to attend us as we explore these writings, that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, we're exploring the epistles of Peter, and we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, the last part of that. We got started last time briefly. Uh, Peter's one of the most colorful characters in the Gospels, of course. He's one of the first disciples uh, to be called, and he always seems to stand first in all the lists that occur in the Gospels. In fact, he was one of the three that formed an inner circle. And this is a concept that may be important to understand. You know, if we take all his followers, uh, and outside of that might be the general public, to whom he spoke in parables only after, uh, after Matthew 12. And, uh, but then uh, within the group of followers, there were apparently 70 that are singled out. Within that 70, there are 12 that we're very familiar with, the 12 disciples. But even among the 12, there, were an, there was an inner circle of three. There are a number of occasions that uh, only those three are participants in. Uh, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter was one of them. The transfiguration in Matthew 17 being another. And Gethsemane, of course, even there, there was an inner group. And at the Olivet Discourse, it was the three plus one. Peter brought along his brother Andrew, and those four received what we know as the Olivet Discourse. Um, the Transfiguration especially is an event that had a tremendous impact on uh, Peter, and he's going to be quite absorbed with that in his second letter. But uh, it's interesting that we sort of love Peter because his impulsive devotion is so it's so colorful and it's frequently portrayed all through the scriptures and there are many occasions when it's Peter that seems to act as the spokesman for the twelve and so the crisis at Caesarea Philippi is one of those occasions where it was one of his finest hours in the sense of uh, 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 acknowledging Jesus Christ as the son of God and uh, the transfiguration which follows is intimately acquainted with it. And both of those events have a great impact on his letters here. And so we're going to see in First Peter the impact of the Caesarea Philippi thing is going to be amplified both in our discussion uh, uh, now and also in the next chapter. It's a major issue there. And, uh, and Second Peter, of course, is, is, uh, takes its coloration from the transfiguration which follows. Well, let's jump in uh, where we left off last time, verse 10, chapter 1. Uh, Peter says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. He's recapping the fact that 
centuries of anticipation by the, the Hebrew prophets are here climaxed here. They inquired and they, they searched diligently and so forth. So it's God's word, the writings of those prophets, if you will, that's the basis of our faith. The, the prophets themselves yearned for the day that we can now see approaching, Peter is saying. And that's especially true of you and me, is that we live in a day that in which we can begin to see the climax of all the things that the Scripture talks about. In fact, Peter goes on to say, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And testified beforehand. You know, one of the most astonishing demonstrations that the Bible is a supernatural product is the detail to which it lays out the life of Christ, including the specifications for his suffering and death. These guys wrote for centuries, testifying beforehand all the details of the sufferings of Christ. Psalm 22 reads as if it was written first person singular while hanging on the cross. There's adequate detail there that led to an article in the American Medical Association Journal describing the suffering and death of Christ from those details. Isaiah 53 describes the purpose of that death with more clarity, perhaps, than all of Paul's epistles put together. In fact, there's even a verse in Isaiah 50, verse 6, that describes some physical things that are missed by most people who make film strips or, or movie clips. And even Daniel 9 dem, uh, prophesies that the Messiah was to be executed, but not for himself, for us. And on it goes. Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. What a strange phrase. We get the impression from the scripture that the angels watch with apprehension and fascination. God's plan unfold in us. And uh, they learn. It's strange for us to visualize angels learning. We tend to impute to them attributes of God. Only God knows the end from the beginning. So the angels are learning God's program and how it works by watching us. They're watching through us. And that's one of the things that Paul elaborates in the third chapter of Ephesians, the, the, these discoveries. The angels are learning. And uh, it's interesting, we should contrast the, the, those last few verses with something we're going to learn when we get to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because that has, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have some verses that you've heard many times. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. One of the things that that verse should indicate to us, there's no reason for us to assume that the writers that were penning, writing down the old prophecies, necessarily understood what they were writing. Certainly not completely. The doctrine of inspiration does not necessarily include the notion that they necessarily understood what they were moved to write. It's pretty clear in many places that what they were writing probably goes far beyond 
that which they could understand. And yet, the author, the Holy Spirit, still could use them to make those records. There are lots of examples. In fact, it's an interesting exercise to go through and find truths that are tucked away in the Torah and other parts of the Old Testament that clearly could not have been fully understood by the penman doing the writing. But the Holy Ghost, uh, they, they, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse 13 begins a group of verses that includes five specific exhortations. You're going to discover that Peter doesn't uh, pull his punches all the way through his letter. He's going to not just give us insights, he's going to exhort us into specific behavior. Five specific exhortations from verse 13, 14, and 15. First one is, gird up the loins of your mind. Now that should remind you of a couple of things. If you're Jewish, that suggests Exodus 12, the, that the Egyptian Passover, where they were, to be eat, they were supposed to eat it with their loins girded up. In other words, and shoes on their feet. Be ready for travel. That's the, what, we, what the Jews would call the Egyptian Passover, the Passover in Egypt. They celebrate that every year, but quite differently, quite casually, quite comfortably. Uh, uh, but the, the original observation of Passover was to be prepared to, to, to uh, begin their journey when the signal was given. And uh, the idea of being girded with truth is also the first of the seven elements of the armor of God that uh, Paul uh, details in Ephesians chapter 6, to be girded with truth. And uh, the second exhortation is to be sober. What do we mean by Self-controlled. Set your hope to the end for the, for the grace, not fashioning yourselves, that is, not being conformed to your former lusts. And finally, the summary one, be ye holy. Pretty heavy stuff going here in these verses 13, 14, 15. Prepare your minds for action is another way of saying that same thing that verse 13 says. Girding your loins, prepare your minds for action. Obedience is the conscious act of the will. Christians in conflict need a tough-minded holiness that is ready for action. This is not academic. This is real. This rattles when you shake it. The second one is be sober, self-controlled. And we find the, the, those kinds of admonitions all through Paul's writings too. The word is nephontis in the, in, from the verb nepho, which means to be sober. It's used figuratively here, of course, in the New Testament. It means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness or excess. It's not just alcohol it's talking about here. Being self-controlled. The, the, the concept here is much broader than a specific form of abstinence, if you will. Every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness or excess. Rather than being controlled... By outside circumstances, believers should be directed from within. You hear someone say, under the circumstances, you stop them right there. What are you doing under the circumstances? Okay. The third one is, set your hope fully, is another way of paraphrasing that third injunction. Holy living demands determination. It's not casual. It re it, it's a result of resolve. A believer's hope is to be set perfectly, 
that is complete, the word, in the sense of completely, unchangeably, without reserve on the, uh, and without reserve on the grace. To be bestowed when Jesus Christ is revealed, and that term in verse 10 is the same word, apocalypsis, that you, think, you would think it would be, of Jesus Christ. The same phrase is used in verse 7, and it also the, uh, compares the verb to be revealed in verse 5. We've come across that before. That I didn't point out as we went. Four times, Peter has already spoken of the Savior's return. It's interesting to just be sensitive to the fact that Peter is very, very conscious in every sentence of the eminent return of Christ. His second letter is going to be a special and eschatological letter. But four times already he's spoken of the Savior's return and the accompanying the ultimate stage of salvation. Our salvation is completed when he returns. Verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Well, that's quite a mouthful. Rather, as obedient children, or children of obedience is what it actually says, they were to mold their characters toward his. And this fourth one, then, do not conform to the evil desires of their past sinful lives, is a way of paraphrasing that. Not fashioning yourselves. Well, that fashioning yourselves is a very, very long Greek word that's also used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 1 and 2 are familiar to you. This is the same word here, using fashioning yourselves. Don't, don't, conform, don't allow yourself to be conformed to the world. Here he's saying, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You're beyond that now. You're informed. Don't be uninformed. And then he gets to the big one. But as he that hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conversation. Now the word conversation, of course, we're, you, we're indulging here in the old English term. Many versions of the King James will have this marked in such a way in, because the word conversation in our vocabulary is quite more, much more limited than it was in the Old English. The Old English it meant behavior in general, not just your words. And this leads to the, the fifth one. Your lifestyle is to reflect not your former ignorance, as we saw in verse 14, the previous one, but the holy nature of the Heavenly Father who gave them new birth and called them to be His own. And, and he's going to talk... Uh, he mentioned that already. Well, he's going to talk a lot more also about being called when we get to Second uh, Peter. And that gets to the climax, climactic one where he quotes, of course, from the Old Testament, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's out of Leviticus 11 and 19 and 20 and many other places. So First Peter 15 through 16, that's going to, it does not speak of legal requirements, but as a reminder of the Christian's responsibility in his inner life and outer work. Remind us of, we have a responsibility, we're not under the law, but we have a responsibility in our inner life, and that should be reflected in our outer walk. Absolute holiness cannot be achieved in this life. However, all areas of life should be in the process of becoming increasingly conformed to God's perfect and holy will. And we do that through the Holy Spirit, not by rule-keeping, but by inner transformation. That's really what he's all about. And you'll discover, of course, that Peter, he has a different way of expressing things, but is very consistent with the same 
uh, emphasis that Paul has in all his epistles. Continue here, and if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, first question, are you sojourning or are you earth dwellers? You know, when we study the book of Revelation, we discover that one of the primary groups that it talks about are earth dwellers. In contrast to us, we are not to be earth dwellers. We're just passing through. We're sojourning, as the old English term would have it. We're passengers. We're not citizens of this world. We look to a city whose maker is God, as Abraham would express it. So as we call on the Father, who is outspecting persons, judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We're just passing through, but we shouldn't be casual about it. We're to live according to his absolute standards, as strangers. In fact, the word aliens will show up in, second, in, in the uh, next chapter. To the world shifting and such. The world's values are not ours. First of all, they're shifting. They're not absolute. They're, we, we, we live in a culture of situational ethics. You have your truth, I have mine. No, no, no. The only truth we want is God's truth. He made the, he made the place. He has the right to establish the rules. If you call on the Father and so forth, pass the time you're sojourning here in fear. That's a strange term. We're speaking, of course, of reverential fear. That should be evidenced by a tender conscience, a watchfulness against temptation, and avoiding things that would displease God. I often find myself doing things which displease God, and once I realize that, that should shock me. When I indulge in something that doesn't seem prohibited. That's not the issue. Is it pleasing God or not? Ooh, wow. That's a tougher shoe to fit, isn't it? So, avoiding things that would displease God. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation or behavior again, received by tradition of your fathers. In other words, you were not it wasn't the silver half shekel. If you study Exodus chapter 30, the coin of redemption was a silver half shekel. He's not talking about that. That was symbolic. It served a purpose under the old administration. Ye were not redeemed with silver half shekels or gold. You were, what were you saved by? The precious blood of Christ. Children of obedience should be should be strangers to their former empty way of life. That's what verse 14 hammers, which was handed down from their forebears since they were redeemed. That, and the word redeemed means to be you know, purchased uh, by a ransom. And what were they purchased with? The precious blood of Christ. We covered that in the, in, uh, in the early development of this passage. Redemption itself is purchasing from the marketplace of sin a ransom not paid by silver or gold, which perish, but with the priceless blood of a perfect lamb. That's what he pinned down back in verse 7. But here we go through. It was, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Without blemish and without spot is a, a term from Passover. It's a Passover term. Our, Jesus Christ was our Passover. That's a phrase used frequently, not only by John the Baptist when he first introduces him 
In chapter John, Gospel of John, chapter one, verse twenty-nine, twice when Jesus is introduced publicly by John the Baptist, he is, "Behold, the Lamb of God." That's a Passover term, pointing to the fact that he was to be sacrificed. But to be qualified, he'd have to be without blemish and without spot, without any defect of any kind. And so, uh, we find that uh, in the Gospel of John, so emphasized, and also Hebrews nine and many other places, of course who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was, made, was manifest in these last times for you. Foreordained. Here we jump into this classic paradox of, fate, you know, of predestination versus free will. But he was foreordained when? When was he foreordained? He was not an afterthought. This was not a knee-jerk reaction when God discovered that Adam blew it. That was all foreseen and was prepared beforehand. God knew that he would and had provided in advance uh, before the foundation of the world. This was done before the creation in God's mind. Now remember from our previous studies in, in both Romans and Ephesians, we talked about this whole paradox of divine volition. Foreknowledge, election, and predestination. Tough terms. Okay, foreknowledge determines election. By knowing in advance, because he's outside time, foreknowledge determines the election. Predestination brings to pass the election. That's bringing what has been elected, bringing it to pass. Election looks back to foreknowledge, and predestination looks forward to destiny. None of this is a, a difficulty if you recognize that we're dealing here with God's Word and God is outside time, you and I are subject to certain physical constraints. One of those physical dimensions we know from 20th century science is time is a physical property, a physical dimension. God is outside time. That's not somebody who has lots of time. It's a God that's free from the constraints of time altogether. So he has foreknowledge, which leads to his election, which leads to predestination, which of course accomplishes the destiny. Each of those is a distinctive Greek term and so used and we've, we've uh, this is by way of review. If this is uh, still a troublesome area, I encourage you to review your notes from the Roman study or from Ephesians. So election can be corporate. Israel as a group was elected, Isaiah 45. The church is also elected before the foundation of the world. The church was on God's mind. We also individually experience election according to the foreknowledge of God, which he's already mentioned here earlier. It's holy of grace, not of merit. We're elected because God chose to elect us, not because we deserve it or have earned it. And, but, it's, but through election that he's certain are chosen for himself. God in his sovereignty selects people for specific jobs, specific roles, and, and, and distinctive service. So praise God for that. And that great excitement, the great adventure in life, is to discover what specifically has He appointed for you to do. And you'll discover that by discovering what unique gifts He's given you, what unique opportunities He brings across your path. That, now there's some interesting parallelism. I call this to your attention in the, in the earlier session where we looked at some overviews here. The parallels between this letter and Peter's sermons recorded in Acts are significant. First Peter 
1.20 is, is really echoes Acts 2, verse 23. And 1 Peter 4.5 echoes Acts 10, verse 42. Very close parallelisms here. One of the most, one of the most striking parallelisms are examples we'll encounter in the next session between, uh, for, uh, with uh, 1 Peter 2 and Acts chapter 4. In each of those passages, Psalm 118, verse 22 is quoted and applied to Christ. And that's about the, the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. And it's interesting that Peter was present when Christ himself used Psalm 118.22 to refer to his rejection by the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21. When Christ did that, Peter was present. And you'll find Peter doing that in the next chapter. So it's interesting to see the, the consistencies here. But moving on. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Wow, okay. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. And... Uh, the, the word sincere, uh, 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 unfeigned, is, is, is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy is what he's saying. All evil thoughts and feelings regarding one's brothers and sisters in Christ must be removed for his followers are to love deeply from the heart. And uh, in fact, the, very, the word there is actually fervently. Unfeigned love. Sincere, without hypocrisy. All evil thoughts, feelings, and so forth. This kind of loving is a verb that emerges from agapeo, can only come from a changed heart, from one whose motives are pure and who seeks to give more than he takes. This love is to be expressed not shallowly, but deeply, at full strength, if you will. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.